in our confession of faith. We finish the book of Leviticus, and oftentimes when I need sort of a, a, a buffer message, we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, but tonight I thought we'd look at chapter 1 in our confession, specifically uh, paragraphs 5 to 10, basically some hermeneutical principles. And hermeneutics simply is the science of biblical interpretation. More on that in just a moment. So I've got, I think, three Wednesdays, including this one, until we go to Kenya. So I thought the next couple Wednesdays, if anybody has any recommended topic or subject that we should look at, then please email me by Tuesday and um, I'll look at, you know, the pile of it and sift through it and try to make a conscientious decision. Just kidding. If, you, if there's anything that you're interested in that, that perhaps would be by way of review or something that we need to spend a little bit of time on, then just, as I said, email me by Tuesday and we'll try and do that next Wednesday night and then the following Wednesday night. So here in chapter 1 in our Confession of Faith, if you don't have a copy of the Confession, does everybody have one? You can turn to page 920 in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. There you have the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 1 is pretty similar in both these confessions. But I want to read beginning in paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenly, uh, heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed." All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. 
that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. Amen. Well, a wonderful statement concerning of the Holy Scriptures or the, the doctrine of Scripture here in our confession of faith. Now, the, chap, or the paragraph that deals specifically with interpretation is paragraph 9. You'll notice it says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. That's one of the primary components when it comes to interpreting the Bible. The Bible is its best interpreter. But as well, as we look from paragraphs 5 to 10, there are things in there, in each of these particular paragraphs, that help us in terms of the interpretation of Scripture. So I want to look first at the scope of Scripture in paragraph 5, secondly, the sufficiency of Scripture in paragraph 6, third, the perspicuity, which simply means clarity, the clarity of Scripture in paragraph 7, fourth, the translation of Scripture, paragraph 8, uh, five, the interpretation of Scripture in paragraph nine, and then the finality of Scripture in paragraph 10. So as I said, the word hermeneutics, it's a word that simply means interpretation. Burkhoff defines it this way, the science that teaches us the principles, laws, and methods of interpretation. Now, this isn't confined to Scripture. There is a general hermeneutical sort of system, or general hermeneutics rather applies to all kinds of writing. There's particular rules that you use when you read Shakespeare, when you read poetry, when you read other literature. But as well, we have, and, and in fact, Plato was the first to use it as a technical term, but special hermeneutics applies to certain definite kinds of writing, and then sacred or biblical hermeneutics obviously applies to scripture. Now, hermeneutics provides the principles by which we engage in exegesis. So it's kind of a connection between theory and application. So the architect draws up the plans in his office and then sends those out, and then they are executed in the actual building that they convey. So the same sort of thing. We take these principles, and there's not a chapter in the Bible that has you know, 15 principles. Just abide by these, and you'll always interpret the Scripture properly. That isn't in the Bible. There's also not that list in the Reformed tradition. You hear about principles of interpretation and, and, and hermeneutics, and you think there's probably some book out there somewhere that fell out of heaven that tells us how to interpret the Word of God. No, it's not quite like that. It's just stuff that when you read through Scripture, and then when you read through the gifts of Christ given to the church, and how they interpret scripture, things along the way, principles along the way have been codified to help interpreters of scripture in the exegetical task. So the word exegesis simply means to take out of the text the meaning that the Holy Spirit intended to be in there. So exegesis is the practical application of a hermeneutical system. 
So we've got principles of interpretation, we've got a method, we've got strategy, but when we go to interpret, we're taking that and applying it. And then the importance of hermeneutics. If you think about theology, theology as a discipline of study can be subcategorized into four parts. First, you have what's called exegetical or biblical theology, stuff dealing specifically with the Bible. Secondly, you have historical theology. That's when you ask the question, what has the church said about the Bible throughout the history of the church? And then you have systematic theology, which basically takes the doctrines of the Bible and, as you might guess, systematizes it, looks at the logical relations between the doctrines, and seeks to present that as a collective whole. And then the last is practical theology. So building upon your exegesis, building upon what the church has said and spoken concerning specific texts, looking at systematic theology, we then engage in practical theology, the outworking of these things in the life of God's people. So if our hermeneutic is incorrect, or if it's wrong, or if it's faulty, what we build upon is then, or the things that rather that we build upon them are going to be bad. In other words, what you put into scripture is what you get out. If you bring a faulty hermeneutic, if you bring faulty principles, you're going to get bad doctrine out. So it's a good thing to try and be consistent, a good thing to listen to the church, because the church has spoken about these things throughout its, uh, throughout its ages. I don't mean this church in particular, but the church in general. Good you know, men who have written, that have uh, uh, done study on these particular things. In fact, Burkhoff has a very helpful book, sort of an introductory book called Bibli uh, Principles of Biblical Interpretation, which might be a good place to start with reference to some of these things. But let's look first at the scope of Scripture in paragraph 5. The paragraph properly is on the authority of Scripture, but I want to just sort of hone in there on the scope of the whole. If you ask the question, what's the point of the Bible? What does the Bible's, you know, why is it there? What, what is its reason for existence? Now, there's a lot of people out there that will answer that question in a lot of different ways. I, I think I've referred to uh, Rick Warren before. Rick Warren is the purpose-driven life, uh, purpose-driven church guy, and that's not actually what I want to pick on him about. He's actually also the Daniel diet guy. He, you know, read the book of Daniel, and there Daniel, you know, abstains from the delicacies of Babylon, and you know, he loses weight, he looks buffed, and, you know, therefore, let's write a book on the Daniel diet. Now, I'm not going to condemn Rick Warren about that, but that's not why Daniel and his diet are in the Bible. You'll oftentimes hear people talk about or psychoanalyze, you know, David and, and Goliath. Well, you know, that story exists to teach us how we're to deal with our giants. That's really not it at all. Uh, that, that's to miss it by a million miles. Uh, some approach the Bible as simply a collection of sort of good sayings and helpful principles for a, for a decent life. Now, there are that, or there are those things in there, but that's not the focus. That's not the primary emphasis. If you look at paragraph 5, it says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the holy scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, and then this next clause I want to focus on, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. 
narrowly considered, this means specific texts and what they mean in specific contexts. But in the broader situation, look at what the confession says. It's the glory of God. And when we ask the question of the Bible, how does God get glory? It is through the salvation of sinners by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the scope of the whole is re redemption by God's grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Barcelo says for the 17th century Reformed Orthodox and their Reformed predecessors, Christ was the scope of scripture, being the primary means through which God gets glory for himself. So if we approach the Bible as simply a collection of maxims and principles and little nuggets of truth to guide us along the way, we're going to miss the point. And the point is the glory of God in the salvation of sinners by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. And that's not just from the confession. We see it in the scriptures themselves. William Ames says the Old and New Testaments are reducible to these two primary heads. The Old promises Christ to come and the New testifies that he has come. Turn to the book of Ruth for a moment. Ruth chapter 4. Now, Ruth is that wonderful love story that we like to read and feel sentimental about and get warm fuzzies and all that sort of a thing. The primary emphasis in the book of Ruth is on the last section in Ruth chapter 4. If you look specifically at verse 17, it says, Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hetzron. Hetzron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. That's the purpose for the book of Ruth. Now, the love story is good. All that other stuff in there is definitely necessary and important. I'm not suggesting it is irrelevant, but it's moving to this presentation of genealogy. Gill says on the book of Ruth, the principal design of it is to give the genealogy of David, whom Samuel had anointed to be king of Israel and from whom the Messiah was to come and who therefore may be said to be the aim and scope of it, as he is all of Scripture, and whereby it appears that he sprung both from Jews and Gentiles, and is the Savior of both, and there is a good foundation for both to hope in him. And the call and conversion of Ruth the Moabitess may be considered as a shadow, emblem, and pledge of the conversion of the Gentiles." Turn over to the New Testament, where we see the scope of the whole, focusing primarily upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24. Again, not that there aren't principles, not that there aren't, you know, nuggets of truth to help us along our way. The primary emphasis in Scripture is redemption by the blood of the Lamb and that for the glory of God Most High. Notice in Luke 24, specifically at verse 25, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, if you're reading Genesis to Malachi and you're missing Jesus, you're not reading it properly. 
Jesus is the sum and substance from Genesis to Malachi. Notice in verses 44 to 47. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, notice, concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So Christ is the one who is telling us that Christ is the scope of the whole. Notice in John's gospel, John chapter 5, specifically at verse 39, Jesus combating, as he often did with the religious leaders, rebukes them in 539. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So they, they, they search the scriptures looking for eternal life, but they didn't search the scriptures looking for the one in whom there is eternal life. They, they missed it by a long shot. Notice in verses 45 to 47, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We have the testimony of Christ. We have the testimony of his apostles. Look at Acts chapter 10. Peter preaching in the household of Cornelius. He says specifically in verse 43, concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So again, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're getting diets and principles and nuggets, but you're not getting Jesus, you're not reading the Old Testament properly. Look at Romans chapter 16, the last bit, the, the doxology of praise to God. Notice in Romans 16, 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, uh, manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So in the first place, it's good to know what the Bible's about when you come to interpret the Bible. If you don't know what the Bible is about, ask somebody so that they can tell you that the scope of the whole is the glory of God in the salvation of sinners by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that will affect how you read it. That will affect how you understand it. That will affect the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. We've got anticipation and promise. We've got realization and fulfillment. The two are inextricably connected together. You don't get rid of one or the other. You must have them both because they testify of the same Christ. So the scope of Scripture. Notice, secondly, the sufficiency of Scripture in paragraph 6. There was a fellow that wrote an article, and he, it was called The Insufficiency of Scripture. And I think that's a volatile title, right? That's a very volatile title. But I think the point was simple. The Bible doesn't tell us how to build a refrigerator. 
The Bible doesn't tell us how to build a car. The Bible doesn't tell us about, you know, how to cook a chicken. I mean, maybe, you know, that's closer to, 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 to it than, than the fridges. So the, the Bible, understanding the scope of the whole, the glory of God, and the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ, it therefore doesn't speak to every possible thing in the world. It, it doesn't address refrigeration. It doesn't address cooking temperatures. It doesn't address, not to say it isn't got science in it, doesn't, you know, not that there isn't logic, not that there isn't those things in it. The primary focus of Scripture is the glory of God, salvation of sinners. So we need to understand the sufficiency of Scripture. Notice what our confession says here. It speaks with reference to God. Verse, or paragraph 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary, notice, for his own glory. That comes first, but then man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. So the extent of Scripture's sufficiency, it is calculated to bring glory to God, and it is calculated to bring blessing to man. Again, it was not calculated to build refrigerators. Now, the salvation of man, the restoration of the mind, the, the image of godness that man possesses, all that enables him to build refrigerators. But there's not a Romans 18 on, you know, appliances. And so when it comes to this issue of the sufficiency of Scripture, the confession is very specific. It is for his own glory and as well man's salvation, faith, and life. And then look at that last statement in the section that we just read. Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, it is true. At the time of the Westminster Assembly, I'm not sure too much about the particular Baptists, there were those who had a more charismatic understanding of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean charismatic like we see in our own day, but I mean those that were open to new leadings by the Spirit. That's just undeniable. But remember that the confessions of faith are consensus documents. So what makes it into the document is a clear statement on what we call today cessationism. And cessationism simply is the cessation of the revelatory gifts of the Spirit, not the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit of God regenerates sinners. That's a gift, and we praise Him for it. But the revelatory gifts, tongue speaking and prophesying, by which tongue speakers and prophets communicated the revealed word of God to the early church prior to the close of the canon. So this statement is a cessationist or a non-continuationist statement, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. John Owen has a famous saying. He says, if private revelations agree with Scripture, they're... They're needless. But if they disagree with Scripture, they're heretical. So this whole idea of new revelation, new light, or the Lord spoke to me or the Lord told me, not so with reference to our confession here. And then notice specifically, it says in the middle there, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So, and that there are some circumstances concerning uh, the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. That's the statement I just mentioned. There's, 
you know, does the Bible say you got to meet at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. And, and at 5 p.m.? No, that's light of nature. That's general revelation. That's Christian prudence. You can agree upon that collectively as brothers in Christ or brothers and sisters in Christ. But the point is, is that when it comes to the glory of God, man's salvation, faith, and life, in the first part of paragraph 6, it's either expressly set down that means explicit statements. You shall not murder. That is an expressly set down statement or necessarily contained. That means it's implied or it's implicit. So when it comes to scripture, it's not only the explicit meaning of text that is authoritatively the word of God, but those things that are deduced by good and necessary consequence. In fact, the Westminster Confession in Savoy contains that language here. It says, by good and necessary consequence may be deduced. So the idea is, is that if you have a sound and a true logical deduction from Scripture, then that is the authoritative word of God. Dixon says, Is not that which necessarily follows from Scripture uh, contained in it implicitly and implicitly revealed by God infallibly true? So again, back to the example, you shall not murder. We say that, you know, if you take a pill and you commit the act of suicide, then that is to violate the sixth commandment. There's no specific text in the Bible that says you must not take a pill and commit suicide. That is a necessary inference that we can deduce from the commandment, you shall not murder. So the sufficiency of scripture is seen in explicit statements and as well in implicit statements in those things that are deduced by good and necessary consequence. And then thirdly, in terms of a principle, the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture in paragraph 7. And notice, first, it says all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. In fact, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. It's a classic proof text on this idea of perspicuity. Usually we invoke it to show that there are some things in the scripture that are hard to understand. And brethren, I think everybody would admit that, right? There's some difficulties when it comes to certain things by way of interpretation. And even Peter recognized that concerning the Apostle Paul's writings. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 14. Uh, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now that last phrase, right before verse 16, the last part of verse 15, is oftentimes employed as a helpful proof text, or at least uh, an implicit statement that Paul wrote Hebrews, because Peter's audience are Jewish believers. And so he's saying, our beloved Paul wrote to you, And then he says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. So the clarity of scripture does not mean you're going to figure every single thing out. The perspicuity of scripture doesn't mean that you're going to be, you know, a rocket scientist that's able to interpret every jot and tittle of God's holy word. That's not the perspicuity of scripture. 
Notice, well, just continuing on this verse, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Notice what he says concerning Paul's writings, as they do also the rest of the Scripture. So Peter recognizes that Paul wrote Scripture by the Spirit for the good of the church. So he acknowledges that not all Scripture is equally clear. The next statement says, nor alike clear unto all. Not everybody's going to be a Calvin. You know, it's like, you know, when mommy said you're going to be, you can be the president. A lot of mothers are lying to their children out there. No, you're, you're not smart enough. You're not going to be a president. Now, I know that's not designed to help their little uh, self-esteem, but somebody needs to deliver that crushing blow. But when it comes to interpreting scripture, we're not going to be, you know, Martin Luther. We're not going to be, you know, Peter Van Maastricht or Turretin. So that, that's okay. Embrace, embrace that. But then it goes on to say, and this is connected to that whole sufficiency of Scripture thing, things necessary for his own glory, the beginning of paragraph 6, man's salvation, faith, and life. Drop down to paragraph 7. Yet, so it's an acknowledgment that not everything is as plain as uh, alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet... Those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. It's a blessed thing. You may not be the brightest bulb in the chandelier, but by God's grace, you can learn the doctrine of salvation. You can learn justification. You can confess faith in Jesus Christ. You can hear that he lived. You can hear that he died. You can hear that he was raised again and that he does this for us men and for our salvation. By God's grace, believing in that and passing from death unto life. It's a blessed, wonderful thing. They're so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned. And I love this, in a due use of ordinary means. You don't have to shimmy up to the top of Mount Sham, not eat anything for 40 days, and just beg the Lord to save you. No, read the Bible. Come to church. Read the confession of faith. Pray to God. Use the means that God's ordained for the salvation of sinners. And I really encourage this to sinners. Read the Bible. Romans 10, 17 is really clear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yes, people need your testimony. Tell them about how good Jesus is, but they need the written word of the living God. Propositional revelation. They need to believe that for salvation. And so the best evangelism you can do for your beloved neighbor or friend or, or, or family member, buy them a Bible and encourage them to read the Bible. Get in there. Get into the text of Scripture. I typically recommend the Gospel of Mark. I know a lot of times people recommend the Gospel of John. John's great too. Mark to me is a simpler, you know, quicker read and uh, 16 chapters. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of effort to read through the Gospel of Mark. I mean, come on. In this day and age, we have all these benefits and all these Bibles and all the... I mean, we don't even have to read it now. Just put it on your phone and they'll read it to you. There's really no excuse for the amount of biblical illiteracy that we face in the church. And for those of us within the church, we ought to commend the reading of God's holy word to people. So the learned and the unlearned. We know the psalmist says that the law of Yahweh makes wise the simple. And he says in Psalm 119, God's law makes me wiser than all my instructors. So it's the scripture that makes a man wise. It's the scripture that makes a man wise knowledgeable. 
And then notice fourthly, we have the translation of scripture in paragraph eight. Paragraph eight basically says we have the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Well, guess what? Living in Chilliwack in the 21st century, we don't speak Hebrew or Greek. So how do we, you know, breach that chasm? How do we bring the word of God to bear upon moderns? Well, notice that the confession reminds us that God's word is inspired. Notice right after the statement concerning Hebrew and Greek, it says being immediately inspired by God. That means that when Paul and Peter and James and John and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Nahum, when they wrote scripture, they were writing the word of God. The classic text is 2 Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, it's God-breathed. That doesn't mean that the apostles were inspired, like we're inspired when we look at a sunset, and then we might compose a psalm or a, or a hymn, rather, or a poem. No, no, no. That's not what inspiration means. It means God-breathed. God used those men with leaving those men intact. When you read Paul, he's not James. When you read James, he's not John. When you read Peter, he's not uh, Matthew. They're their own men. They're their own fellows. They're their own guys. God doesn't destroy that, but rather God uses that to speak to the church specifically. So we've got this statement concerning divine inspiration, but then we have this statement concerning providential preservation. So notice, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. It's a wonderful statement. God, who gave us the word, in fact, if you look at paragraph one in this chapter, it will tell you why God had the word given. At the very bottom, or, you know, well, let's look right in the middle. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy underwriting, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Again, another statement on cessationism or non-continuationism. The idea being is that God, who gave the word through Paul, through Peter, through James, through John, through Isaiah, through Jonah, was able to preserve that word such that we can trust what we have now in our English Bibles. The argument's simple. If the God of Genesis 1 is the God of Genesis 1, then certainly what Paul wrote in the first century is still what we have in the 21st century. And so we have translation of Scripture. Notice, going on in paragraph 8, but because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, they are, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar. Vulgar doesn't mean bad words. It means the, the, the various languages out there, the non-Hebrew, uh, uh, non non-Greek, the vulgar language of every nation under which they come that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Now, the particular discipline that deals with this sort of a thing, it's called textual criticism. And textual criticism is a monumental area of study. 
But suffice it to say that the New Testament, we have over 5,000 extant manuscripts of the New Testament. Compare that with, say, Plato. There might be a couple. Do you notice that people in college settings don't question the integrity of Plato's writings? They don't say, well, you know, this can't actually be what Plato wrote. Well, they do that all the time with what Paul wrote. Why is that? Because they have an ax to grind against God. They don't have an ax to grind with Plato. They have an ax to grind with God. So they think there's all these errors. There's all these problems. There's all the over 5,000 extant manuscripts. That doesn't mean Matthew to Revelation. It doesn't mean, you know, beautifully bound Cambridge Bibles with wide margins so that Paul could write his copious notes in there. No, but, but there are pieces, fragments, minuscules, uh, codices, all sorts of things and displayed throughout the world in various museums. The, the Bible is the most well-attested book in the world. And again, those who say, well, it's all filled with all kinds of inconsistencies and contradictions. Best way to, to rebuke that is, or rebuff that is just hand them the Bible, say, show me these things. So, so textual criticism deals with the underlying Greek manuscripts. And typically, they, I don't know that I want to get too far afield here, but, but basically they, they categorize or they, there's three approaches to the sort of uh, the Greek New Testament. One is called the Textus Receptus, and that's the, the Greek text that the King James Version was translated from. The New King James is also, what's that? Boo, Boo. okay. Uh, and then you have what's called the majority text. The majority text is basically the most readings, the most amount of manuscripts that, that pertain to a reading. And, and this affects what you see when you're reading. Say, for instance, you have the New King James which by the way, one of the benefits of the New King James is the marginal notes. But it'll tell you where there's a difference between say the Textus Receptus and other manuscripts. Those are called variant readings. This does not mean there's errors or problems in the Bible. It doesn't mean that, that Paul wrote something in error. It means in the transmission of scripture, scribal errors did come to pass. But realize, uh, let me just finish these manuscripts. So you've got Textus Receptus, Majority, and then what's called the Eclectic Text. And that's pretty much the foundation for all the modern translations, all the modern perversions, all the, just kidding, uh, all the modern uh, departures from, I'm kidding, I, I gotta stop here. Me and Shane are gonna fight. But uh, so, so those are the three differences. But I, I think the number, it's been some time since I looked into this, Within that, there's about 85% agreement. When, when we talk variant readings, it could be the difference between Bethsaida and Bethesda. We're not talking about, you know, massive, oh, all, you know, life-shattering, earth-altering sorts of things. So, so these are called variant readings, and the discipline that is tasked with, with investigating th these things is called textual criticism, and it's not being critical, yeah, you're messed up. It just means going into the text, looking, comparing, and sort of collating things. And then fifth, the interpretation of scripture. As I said, there's probably a lot more that could be said on a lot of these things, but just a flyover tonight. So the interpretation of scripture proper in paragraph nine. You have two principles here, the analogy of scripture and the analogy of faith. Notice the analogy of scripture. It says the infallible rule of scripture, uh, of scripture, or I'm sorry, of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. That should make perfect sense, right? If you have a problem with something in the Bible, 
ask the Bible. Uh, a, a way to you know, sort of illustrate this, one of, one of the ones that I use pretty regularly is baptism. There's a statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, where the Apostle Paul mentions baptism for the dead. What does that mean? Well, I'm not sure I'll ever know what it means, but I can tell you certainly what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we baptize dead people. So how do I come to that, that, that recognition? Well, from the clear teaching passages where baptism is asserted. We see it as something that is given to believers. It is by immersion, and it represents our union with Jesus Christ and his life, death, and uh, burial and resurrection. Uh, eschatology, the study of last things. There's you know, much to say on that subject, but we always confine everything to Revelation chapter 20 and the identification of the thousand years there. Well, the book of Revelation is a very symbolically highly charged book. It, it tells you from the outset, there's things signified. It, when you read through it, there's monsters, there's beasts, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. And yet we get to Revelation 20, and all of a sudden we're just, you know, have to take everything here absolutely literally. I would suggest that 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28 is a clearer presentation of what happened, not presentation, a clearer statement of what happens when Jesus returns. So I think that a 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28 can help us with a Revelation 20. In other words, you don't take the admittedly difficult passages to help you with the admittedly clear passages. Why would anyone do that? Why would you take a passage that's not as clear to help you with passages that are certainly clear? Take the certainly clear passages and let them help you with the not certainly clear passages. Muller says, the analogy of Scripture, the interpretation of unclear, difficult, or ambiguous passages of Scripture by comparison with clear and unambiguous passages that refer to the same teaching or event. Again, when you start looking at hermeneutics or these principles of interpretation, have I said anything tonight that you would go, wow, I can't believe? Probably not. You've probably thought, yeah, we should probably know what the Bible is about. Yeah, we should recognize it's sufficient. Yeah, we should recognize that it, it, it is to be translated. These are things that once you hear them, you just kind of go, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So it's not esoteric. It's not you know, confined to a handful of monks in the 14th century out in the desert. These are things for the church so that when you're reading your Bible, you can profit and you can benefit and you can grow and you can understand. So if you come to something that's difficult to understand, look in a passage that's not as difficult to help shed light on it. I gave the example of baptism and of eschatology. So it says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Nehemiah Cox, the architect of our confession, says, So in all our search after the mind of God in the Holy Scriptures, we are to manage our inquiries with reference to Christ. Therefore, the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New. <laughs> Again, this is just, to me, so, so basic that you let the apostles show and teach and lead and demonstrate how to deal with Old Testament prophecy. If you do that, you can't help but become reformed. 
It's an inevitability. If you listen to the, the, the Paul, how he deals with who Israel is, what the land is, who you know the blessings and the promises are for, what Paul does with the Old Testament prophets is to be the pattern for what we do with the Old Testament prophets as well. Some have said, well, Paul had the spirit, and we don't in the way that Paul had it. So if Paul had the spirit and does correct biblical interpretation, if we don't have the spirit like Paul, shouldn't we still follow what Paul had when he had the spirit in correct biblical interpretation? There are people, brethren, and, and Bible teachers, professors of theology, that say you can't use Paul in Romans 5 to help you understand Genesis 1 to 3. That is mind-blowing. You can use John Calvin to help you with Genesis 1 to 3, but you can't use the Apostle Paul. Well, when you read Romans chapter 5, Paul helps a lot with Genesis 1 to 3. We need to listen to him and let him help us with Genesis 1 to 3. So, so interpreting scripture by scripture, interpreting Old Testament scripture with the New Testament apostles and seeing how they themselves do it. See how they apply it in light of the Christ event, in light of the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of the one who was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. Now that he's come, now that he's lived, now that he's died, now that he's been raised, now that he's been ascended on high, the apostles write and they apply Old Testament prophecy and they show how it is fulfilled in him. Certainly we follow their example. And if we do so, I think we're going to be correct when it comes to certain things that are very, very provocative in our own generation. So not only the analogy of scripture, but there's also something called the analogy of faith. And again, Moeller says, the analogy of faith, it means the use of a general sense of the meaning of Scripture, constructed from the clear or unambiguous uh, text as the basis for interpreting unclear or unambiguous texts. As distinct from the more basic analogy of Scripture, the analogy of faith presupposes a sense of the theological meaning of Scripture. In other words, it's the overarching ebb and flow of God's Word. In other words, the theological interpretation of Scripture. Thankfully, that is making a, a resurgence in our own day. It's what the church operated with and practiced up until the Enlightenment. And again, the, the historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture, good. We should, as far as we're able, know what's going on in the background. We should know how to parse verbs. We should know how to sentence diagram. We should know how to break down you know, syntactical units and all that sort of thing. But we need to know the theological interpretation of Scripture. We need to understand God, the Lord, speaking in the Word of God. That is the primary emphasis. you got guys that are skilled in Greek. They are skilled in the background. They are skilled in all this stuff. And they don't know theology, brethren. And then you go back to our brothers in the history of the church, and they didn't have the, the resources available, the computers available, and yet they understood that God the Lord spoke his, spoke his word uh, through uh, both the Old and the New Testaments, and they understood that. Very crucial. Analogy of faith, analogy of Scripture. And then the finality of Scripture in paragraph 10. The supreme judge, this again is an interpretative principle. We can use the gifts that Christ has given to the church. Notice that paragraph 10 does not denounce, does not decry, and does not suggest that there should be no decrees of councils, 
that there should be no opinions of ancient writers, that there should be no doc. That's not the argument in paragraph 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. So it's not saying that councils, creeds, confessions, remember, they're writing a confession. They're not saying don't do these things. They're saying that everything written by man, uninspired man, is ultimately subject to and subordinate to the word of the living God. It must be, it can be, no other but Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. So everything that was written, everything that, that we use to help us with reference to the interpretation of Scripture, it's all subordinate. It is not on the same level. It is not on par with Scripture. So just some principles there, hopefully, that will help in interpreting. If you have questions and maybe you want to go a bit more into one of these particular subjects next week, as I said, you know, text me or email me by Tuesday. I'll close, and then if there's any questions about anything in there, we'll talk. Our Father, we thank you for these things that we find here in our Confession of Faith. We thank you for the scriptures and the clarity that we have concerning the glory of God and the salvation of man. I pray that you would bless and encourage us with these things, that you would help us to read our Bibles with, with zeal and earnestness, with receptivity, and with a desire to do what you call us to do. And we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, any questions or comments?